0: or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician, Clint Ramsey, brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206-451-4220. Our podcast is brought to you by That's a Sum Pizza. Using a 120 year old starter from the Klondike Gold Rush, they make unique sourdough crusts that can't be found anywhere else in the world. That's a Sum Pizza also delivers wine and beer. Call 206 842 2292. Order online at thatsasum.com or download That's a Sum Pizza app on Android and iOS. Congratulations to the team of Alan Raymond and Will Grant who brought home the first place trophy from the recent Caputo Cup at the Pizza and Pasta Show in Atlantic City. I got something for your mind, body and soul. Mind, body and soul So, Linda, there's a huge crisis in America, and it seems in my mind it's coming out more and more around here. I and mean, recently talking to some high school kids about mental health and um, bipolar and depression and suicide. They're all in the forefront of, of the news, and unfortunately, this last school year, we had a child commit suicide just along the border of the campus of the high school and talking to the boys um, a couple of weeks ago, they were saying that their mental health was at an all-time low and they weren't enjoying the high school experience. I know this is the kind of field that you deal with on a professional level. Personally, how do you feel about the world and and all these school shootings and the amount of suicides that are going on and just the kids' behavior in general now at the high school ages?
1: Well, that's a big question, and Uh, so let's see if we can break it down into some smaller pieces. Uh, We do know that one in ten children um, at any point in time have a serious emotional disturbance. And we know that two-thirds of teenagers who have depression or a serious disturbance, emotional disturbance, are not getting the treatment they need for that disorder. And Washington is not particularly well-resourced. I think we are 48 out of 50, the last time I checked, in terms of access to mental health services. So there's certainly a lot of stressors in our lives. um, And uh, it would be great to invest more in services to provide the treatment that is needed. The, it's important to start early in terms of identifying mental health disorders and getting help from mental health disorders. Um, about 75% of all psychiatric disorders begin before the age of 24, and half of all psychiatric disorders begin before the age of 14. So that by the time we're seeing teenagers, uh, many of them are already displaying um, signs of stress. And what do we know about stress? Well, we know that stress is a trigger for a number of emotional disturbances. That stress does things to your body. That stress does things to your thinking. It does things to your mind. It changes the way things are. And It happens early. For instance, there are new laws in some states, and I think California is one of them, where they now require pregnant women to be screened for depression. Why is that? Because a pregnant woman who is depressed is going to have a child whose brain has been changed by that experience and is at risk. That individual, the unborn child, as it grows, then becomes at risk for depression, him or herself. Um, on the other hand, if we do something about the pregnant woman with depression, we can really ameliorate that risk substantially. So there are lots of things that we can do. So the issue of stress and depression does things to our bodies, it does things to our brain, and there's a great deal of stress out there.
0: As a, as a parent, where do we start looking for these signals and these these type of things within our own children and our children's friends?
1: Yeah. Well, a good thing to do is to make sure that you're having conversations in your home as opposed to interrogations in your home.
0: Yeah, well said.
1: (laughs) So many times the dinner conversation ends up being something like, what do you have to do? How much homework do you have? What happened in school today? As opposed to perhaps talking about interesting big questions. And so I think if you have an environment at home in which kids don't feel like they're being interrogated, but they do feel like they're being heard, and that you as a family um, are able to have a place at the dinner table or other times where there are interesting conversations taking place, um, there's a better chance that you're going to be talking to each other and listening to each other. Um, So how do parents begin to hear what their kids have to say as opposed to correcting what their kids have to say or lecturing to their kids? How do they engage in active listening? That's a great place to start. How do you begin to listen in a non-judgmental fashion and let your kids know that you've heard what they have to say? You may not always agree with them, You may not be able to fully understand what their experience is, but when kids are validated and heard, that's a great place to start. The other issue is to recognize our own biases and the issues of stigma with mental health. You know, many of the families that I treat, when I take a family history, um, the parents have often struggled— in the past, either as teenagers or as kids or as young adults with anxiety or depression or alcohol use or substance abuse themselves. Um, But at the same time, there's so much shame attached to that, that when there's a signal that that may be going on with their own child, in their own family, or with uh, a friend or a classmate of their child... There's a – this is too scary to think about. It reminds me of a very difficult time. And part of the problem is we're not having national conversations. People are not speaking about, about their own experiences the way we'd like them to. It's happening more than it used to. Um, but the stigma of anything that has to do with mental health is quite strong um, You know, I can't tell you how many times people will talk to me and say, oh, you're a psychiatrist. Well, you're not a real doctor. (laughs) Um, Anything attached to mental health is frequently stigmatized. The clinics, the hospitals or someplace else, the treatment staff. So stigma is a big issue. And we need to recognize that in ourselves, even in our own families, that when there is a signal, sometimes we get worried and we're hoping for the best. We also live in a society where we support uh, grit and determination and strength, which is terrific. Um, but we have to allow for the fact that sometimes those wonderful characteristics are characteristics than having to be strong all the time, is something's having to be powerful all the time, uh, having to just endure all the time. Those are things that can also make us ill. They can also make us sick. And how do we allow for the fact that we all have feelings, we all have big feelings, we all have distressing feelings, and how do we begin to develop coping strategies very early on, from preschool on up, about how do you cope with big feelings, how do you cope with distress? That's where we need to start, families.
0: When, when you treat families, do you treat the kid separately or with the parents or a combination of both? Yeah.
1: Well, whenever I evaluate a child or a teenager, um, I start with um, parents and the child. So if it's a young child, I'll frequently speak to parents first, um, because sometimes they need to give a lot of history and um, sometimes talk about painful things, and you don't want a child to feel criticized in the room. Um, So we'll frequently get a lot of background information first. But with teenagers, meaning 13 or 14 and on up, they start in the room with me. And we all meet to talk about what the problem is. Who's identified the problem? Whose idea it is to be here? Does everybody see this uh, from the same point of view? Um, how much distress is going on? And who wants help? Sometimes the child wants help. Sometimes the family wants help. Somebody. Sometimes uh, there isn't recognition that there is a problem by everybody in the family. It would be nice for me to be able to do all the work, but We are in Kitsap County where there's a dearth of child psychiatrists, hardly any. And so I do my very best to work with some talented psychotherapists, both on Bainbridge Island, in Kitsap County, and in Seattle, uh, in order to collaborate so that when I see a child and I'm uh, evaluating for whether or not there's a psychiatric disorder, whether there's something that requires treatment, um, what kind of treatment... Is that treatment going to require medication in addition to psychotherapy? Or can I just say, you know what, this is a normal variation of development, and let me reassure you, but these are ways in which you can get support for the questions that you have. So those are the kinds of things that I figure out and make recommendations about.
0: I have a couple of questions that come to mind there. One is <clears throat> um, not being in someone's head, how do you know what type of medication would work? Um, I've already lost the second part of my question. Um, Oh, now I know. Um, How do we get more students, college students, into this field of expertise to help with this national problem?
1: Yeah. Well, that's a really good question. And, um, you know, we're trying to recruit uh, in the field of child psychiatry. Now, if you're a child psychiatrist, you go through university. You go through medical school, and then you go through advanced training in what we call a residency, which can be three to five years. So that's a lot of time, and it's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Um, So at least in the field of medicine uh, and psychiatry um, is one of the lower reimbursed uh, medical subspecialties. So you need to make it possible for people to get through medical school to get the loans they need. Um, But the same is true of psychologists. Uh, In order to get a PhD, it's generally a six-year process after university. How do you support yourself during that process? How do you have access? So I think that we're doing a better job these days because uh, the field of mental health is increasingly and hopefully entirely an evidence based field, that it's based on current research, ongoing research, that things that we assumed were true, we're learning about, well, actually, there are other paths forward, or that which we thought was really the way we needed to do things um, has not been supported by clinical studies or a repeat of clinical studies that validate pre existing um results so i think that um you know it's really hard to know how but i think we need to make education possible and that means accessible loans that means uh helping kids at high school levels understand that there are options and exciting options for them yeah, later. get
0: them excited about it yeah with the early in- introduction
1: yeah yeah, yeah.
0: um m- mental health there's depression there's bipolarism there's a a myriad of different things. How do you decide what somebody has through these evaluations and what, how do you decide what kind of medication is suited for that person? Because I know some people have bipolar or, or mental illness and certain drugs do not work for them and some of them absolutely radically change them for the better.
1: Well, the first place to start is that um, there are evidence-based algorithms uh, for children, teenagers, and adults. And how you treat adults is not always the same as how you treat teenagers and children. That's first of all, to recognize that there are evidence-based algorithms that are not perfect um, but offer us a way. Diagnosis is still largely a clinical interview process. Um, sometimes supported by what we call psychological testing. But unlike other medical disorders, to date, this will change in the future, but to date, we don't have blood tests that give us a diagnosis. Mm. We don't have CAT scans or functional MRIs that give us a diagnosis. We do rule out other coexisting medical disorders that can present as a mental health issue. For instance, if you are dragging around and you wonder if you're depressed, but you really have anemia, well, maybe we need to treat the anemia.
0: And that's an easy blood test. And those
1: are easy things to do. So what we try and do when we evaluate the child is to rule out common in children and in teenagers and in adults, is to rule out common medical disorders that can masquerade as mental health issues. Um, Likewise, we know that people with mental health issues are much more likely to have serious medical issues. Um, Part of it has to do with access to care, but otherwise it has to do with the role of what we call the inflammatory process, that when somebody has, for instance, Asthma or diabetes there 's an inflammatory process um, going on, um, and we 're learning increasingly that that same inflammatory process contributes to me- mental health disorders, so sometimes there 's a coexisting Are there great ways to measure that at this particular point? Well, yes, in the research lab, but not in the pediatrician or the family doctor's office at this point in time. So recognition starts with family, and it starts with primary care doctors. One of the things that Washington has done very well for children and for teenagers is to create something called PAL. And that is a telephone hotline that goes directly to Seattle Children's Hospital and a series of experts in child psychiatry where pediatricians and primary care doctors can call up and in real time get advice for somebody who's in their office. Because in the state of Washington, the only way, and in many other states, the only way that we're gonna be able to deliver the psychiatric and mental health care needs that exist are gonna start with primary care offices. We don't have enough specialists in this state or in many other states. And again, University of Washington is at the forefront, thankfully so, in developing a model called collaborative care. Now, that's a model I deeply believe in, um, but it's not an easy model to roll out because of you need to make a business case for it. You need to come up with a system of reimbursement. But by and large, what it allows you to do in a – primary care setting is to provide the primary care physician with the support they might need to provide ongoing care for where somebody gets most of their care, their medical care um, for children, for teenagers, and for adults. By having a behavioral health specialist in the clinic, by routinely screening everybody who comes in for their annual physical or other visits for anxiety and depression and other disorders by taking a look at those screens over time and having a psychiatrist when need work with a behavioral specialist to identify which people seem at risk, who's getting better, who's not getting better, and who needs some additional specialty treatment, and then to come in and do that. It allows you to keep most of the care in the primary care clinic. And by doing so, you do a couple of things. One is people are more likely to get help because it's less stigmatized. Um, and two... There are people to provide the help. Now, primary care people are pretty busy at this point.
0: Oh, absolutely. It's hard to even get a primary doctor.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I think that we, um, as uh, people who vote, (laughs) need to express um, our feelings that we really need to increase investment in mental health and the support of the primary care physicians who are providing the great bulk of it and doing the very best they can. Yeah, as, it, as is.
0: I, I do blood mapping about it every 90 days to know what's going on inside of me. But I think there is uh, something on the back of my check-in form that says, are you feeling anxiety or depression? And not knowing exactly how to define depression. Yeah. That box is never checked. And that is the extent of my screening for depression.
1: Well, that's too bad because there's some really good short screening tools uh, for any primary care doctors out
0: there. Why do you think that's not a routine right now?
1: You know, it might be a lack of awareness or it might be a misunderstanding about how long it takes. But there's something called, for instance, a GAD, which is uh, a seven-question assessment for anxiety, and a PHQ-9 which is a seven-question assessment for depression that does a very good job in screening. Um, And many of the practices on Bainbridge Island, because they, they, you know, I talk with them and they do it, um, routinely hand these out during visits.
0: How how do you define depression?
1: Well, it's not how I depression. But it's uh, a clinical diagnosis, uh, and I'm not going to rattle off all of the issues right now because there's Mm -hmm. something we call major depression and chronic depression or dysthymia, or there are other kinds of mood disorders calling bipolar disorder. But by and large, when we call something a disorder, we're looking at an issue that interferes with functioning, interferes at functioning in multiple levels as an adult with your ability to operate as a parent or on the job in a child. Uh, with your ability to function socially and in school. Um, So it doesn't always include just sadness. It may include periods of irritability.
0: It's very broad-based, right?
1: Yes. It can include periods of low energy and low mood. Uh, Frequently, it has to last for, be present most of the time for at least two weeks. It's frequently accompanied by changes in appetite and sleep. Um, And it is often accompanied by feelings of helplessness, and hopelessness, and often suicidal ideation. And it's very treatable, which is the important thing.
0: What? Wow, there's so many questions. We're going to be here all day. I love it. Um, what percentage of, I don't know if you can qualify this, but what percentage of people are going around depressed, That don't even know it on just the average person that you see it in the school parking lot or at the grocery store. You
1: know, I I don't know how to answer that question, but I do tell you that uh, primary care doctors and people who come to see me will all the time tell stories about that they've sought help with their physician because they weren't feeling well in some way, frequently physically. Mm-hmm. Um, that they were feeling run down, that they had no energy, that they had headaches and stomach aches and other kinds of somatic symptoms. And their physician then gently may raise the issue It says, you know, I've done some tests and I've done an exam. And it seems to me that what might be contributing to your current difficulties are a combination of anxiety and depression. And that's a very common Statement that primary care doctors will say, I you know I don't have the figures offhand about mm-hmm. who goes around and comes up with that, but it's not an uncommon um, it's n- it's not an uncommon experience for people to hear. Now, for some people, hearing that is unacceptable because in their own mind. Um, they see themselves as strong and powerful. And the idea of having a mental health issue, such as anxiety or depression, which almost always coexists, by the way, is just unacceptable. Uh, That makes them feel vulnerable, ashamed, uh, and there's a real reluctance. At the same time, um, primary care doctors don't necessarily, not everybody needs to go on medication. And primary care doctors may not have easy access to Um, well-trained psychotherapists or counselors in the community uh, who are available Um, in this community. um, You know, I'll have parents tell me all the time, you know, everybody's full. Everybody's busy. Um, Or people are full um, or people don't take my insurance or there's just a long waiting list and I can't wait. So access is a very big issue.
0: Yeah, those are all real problems for sure. Um how do you, how do you go about your work on a daily basis of the support that you give people um and the follow-up and I, I know some people would walk into your office and you would have a session typically and you would talk about certain things. But what kind of follow up and impact do you have on those patients on a daily basis or weekly or monthly? Yeah.
1: Well, um, I'm lucky enough to have um, been able to hire a wonderful psychiatric nurse who worked with me at Kitsap Mental Health Services. And so I am lucky that I have an extra pair of hands in my office who is available on the phone um, during the day and provides incredible support and answers questions when I'm busy uh, with the door closed with somebody in my office. So that's one of the ways we provide the support. But- Psychiatrists are collaborative people. We need to be collaborative people. On the one hand, it's very private what goes on in the psychiatric office. People don't talk to us and trust us unless we are able to maintain their confidentiality. On the other hand, what we really do need to do with permission and written permission is to be able to collaborate and collaborate with people in these uh, individuals' lives. That generally involves the primary care doctor making sure we're collaborating that person, and with the psychotherapist. So that sometimes that also includes people who are special educators or school counselors. So that it's not just me. I'm working with a team. They may be a virtual team in that they're scattered in the community, but I'm not doing this by myself, nor can I do it by myself.
0: Uh, so does your phone ring a lot?
1: Uh, The phone rings a lot. Um, I actually meet with a group of pediatricians on the office once a month, and we have lunch together. We paper bag it and Mm -hmm. just talk about issues in child psychiatry or particular kids uh, or referrals or whether or not they're appropriate referral. Um, But generally... um, I'm on the phone a fair amount with primary care doctors. Um, We also use, because of time constraints, um, rating scales that have been tested to be accurate to distribute to individuals. They fill those things out before they see me on a computer, and I get to see them in real life time. We distribute them with permission uh, to teachers. Um, And sometimes parents fill these things out. So then we have another form of communication, standardized communication, and that's very helpful. But uh, would I like to have the time to be able to do more than that? Absolutely. You know, it would be great uh, if all of us had the opportunity, at least for kids and teenagers, to spend more time in the school and whatnot. Um, We do that when we can and go to meetings when that's important to try and make a difference in an education plan or arrange for accommodations. But sometimes we're trying to do this virtually
0: in the education field in a school counselor role what is your expectation of the school counselor and what is currently going on with school counselors do are they just there as stopgap band-aid type things or are they having kids constantly come through and looking for you know
1: well school counselors play different roles depending upon how the school identifies that role and how the counselor identifies that role. So in some schools, uh, school counselors will uh, provide a public health role that they'll do education regarding uh, how to stay healthy, both emotionally as well as physical. Uh, Sometimes they're identifying learning issues in schools um, and working with the district uh, psychologists, if additional testing or evaluations are possible. Uh, sometimes they're working as college advisors um, at the high school level. So school counselors provide lots of different roles. Roles um, On Bainbridge Island, at Bainbridge High School, we're particularly lucky in that we have something called Bainbridge Youth Services embedded in the school. So that's a freestanding, door-open um, clinic of sorts in which counseling is provided on a confidential basis at no fee um, to kids who seek help. Um, And families can get involved if they choose to. Um, I think that uh, counselors and BYS, you know, they all have to try and sort out in their own mind, well, what can we manage within this setting and what exceeds our capacity, our level of expertise? Um, and then they have to work with individuals in the community to try and get additional help.
0: How long does it take to typically to see improvement in someone's mental health?
1: Well, you know, there are surprisingly a number of extremely effective therapies, psychotherapies, we're talking about talking therapies, which only last 12 to 16 sessions, so pretty quickly. Um, the issue is uh, evidence-based psychotherapies, when you do it sort of by the book. Now, there are a lot of people who will be seen for support, um, and sometimes they get better and sometimes they don't get better. Um, But there are certain therapies, uh, a variety of them. One's cognitive behavioral therapy. There's something called narrative-based therapy, something called dialectical behavior therapy. And all of them um, have generally time-limited models. Now, not everybody gets better or gets Mm -hmm. better quickly. But in general, you'd be surprised. I worked in a clinic in Japan where – After two or three sessions, people did not necessarily feel the need to come back when they didn't have a very serious psychiatric disorder. They got better relatively quickly. But most of those evidence-based sessions are 12 to 16 sessions, so it's relatively short.
0: Let's back up here a little bit and tell me a little bit about your um, education process um, and your overseas work.
1: Well, um, I'm a physician, which means I went to medical school after university. Um, I was lucky enough to be in a seven-year program, so I got to cut it off by a year and save one year of tuition, which was important because I didn't have any money. And um, so I was at Brown University in a seven-year program, Uh, After you finish medical school, then you choose to go on to your specialty training in a process called the match. You decide who you really would like to work with and where you'd like to train. And they decide who they want in their training program. And when there's a match, there's a match. And everybody finds out the same time, the same day, all around the nation.
0: So is that like a postdoc fellowship type thing?
1: It's something like that, yeah. But it's, it's medical, yes. So I started out in pediatrics for a year and thought I was going to be a pediatrician, but was completely astounded by the amount of mental health issues that presented in the pediatric world and decided I really wanted to learn more about that. So then I went on to do an additional three years of training in adult and general psychiatry, and then an additional two years in child psychiatry. So it's a relatively long process, um, then um, I worked for a couple of years in this uh, country, uh, primarily in New York and in New Jersey. You can tell from my accent. Uh, and then, uh, but got married and moved to Hong Kong, where I was a one-person <laughs> division of child psychiatry at Chinese University in the New Territories, uh, with uh, in a wonderful new academic setting with a great team of people, where I taught medical students, and we had. Uh, residents who were learning about psychiatry, uh, and did that for a couple of years. Came back to the United States, worked in Oregon for about eight years, and then moved back to Asia, where I worked in Singapore, Hong Kong, and Japan, and spent the last twenty years doing that before returning to the United States three years ago.
0: What brought you? What brought you to the island, Seattle area?
1: Well, I'd lived in Oregon for Oregon for quite some time. I really loved the Northwest. Um, I, My husband and I were looking for a place that had great beauty, uh, access to a wonderful city. Um, we like to sail, so there's wonderful sailing. Oh, yeah, uh, sure. And uh, outdoor sports as well as a wonderful cultural scene. You know, we like opera and symphony, and we you get to have it all here. It's a very special
0: place. It's a very world-class city. It
1: and certainly is.
0: Being on this island, there's so much natural beauty and outdoors stuff to do. It's a healthy place to live, I think. So why do you think we can't figure it out here in this small island, you know, that we have a casualty of suicide, we have kids super depressed and using drugs at a all- all-time high? Um, thank goodness there hasn't been a shooting, but I mean, there's been three lockdowns this school year. Yeah. Um, people are... Losing their minds.
1: Well, you know, suicide is the second cause of death uh, in teenagers. It's uh, way up there nationwide. Uh, And uh, suicide awareness is thankfully becoming an increasing public health issue. And I was very happy to see the suicide awareness walk last year on Bainbridge Island and so, that people are beginning to understand how to recognize the science of suicide to know that it's safe to ask, that you're not going to put somebody's, you're not going to make somebody suicidal by asking them if they're thinking about hurting themselves or killing themselves. Um, the substance abuse issue is also of great concern. And, um, you know, I was not one of the supporters of legalizing uh, marijuana for 18 year olds. There's a lot of data. Uh, that what's safe for adults is not safe for teenagers. Yeah,
0: their front uh, cortex isn't developed at that age, that's right? That's correct.
1: And we know that there's a six-fold risk for regular marijuana users who are teenagers or young adults of having a first psychotic episode who otherwise wouldn't. Um, so that's really great concern. And we also understand that it is affecting learning and memory and judgment in a way that's very concerning. So I, you know, I wasn't a big supporter of that. It's rampant. It's available. Um, Other drugs of abuse are also in the high school, um, including cocaine uh, and prescription drugs. Uh, Xanax uh, is a big favorite in this particular school. Um, And kids are accessing um, marijuana you know, illegally, but you can buy when you're 18, and uh, they're also getting it from their parents who are users at home. Uh, What's the who, who are illegal, <laughs> legally <Yeah>. using it? <laughs> yeah,
0: lock your stuff up, parents. Um, r- what is it, Ridlin? Uh, a bunch of Seahawks were busted for having that, a focus drug. Um, well, a lot of kids are th- under the impression that that it will help them do the standardized testing, be more focused and yeah. hyped, but it seems like it's pretty abusive.
1: Well, there are um, good medications that we use on a regular basis for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, which has to be diagnosed by a physician um, and uh, is often treated by stimulants. Um, stimulants include meth- medications like Ritalin, or which is a methylphenidate medication, and longer-acting medications. And then derivatives of uh, dextroamphetamine, things like Adderall and Vyvanse. Adderall, um, that's what yeah.
0: I'm thinking of. So
1: all of these medications have some street value. Um, and especially on college campuses and whatnot, people who think they're going to stay up all night and become smart in five minutes.
0: Yeah, Adderall in the colleges is a huge business. Yeah,
1: so there's great diversion. And um, on the other hand, these are extremely effective and safe medications and prevent substance abuse. We know that when you adequately treat ADHD, you're going to decrease the risk of substance abuse and other issues.
0: Yeah, but can't it get like a a faux meth type, situation, if you start taking too many of those stimulants, it, it copies meth and amphetamines?
1: Well, if you were, all of these medications can be used in, properly, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, you know, I mean, why do we have to go uh, and now get decongestants only in small numbers because people can use even decongestants like sudeperins to make yeah, other sud-deferin. cocktails of medications. So there are many things that can be diverted and improperly used. You know, when I treat kids um, I strongly advise parents to provide supervision for supervised medication taking, even for their Mm 18-year-olds, that uh, a parent needs to be aware of what's going on. I also give everybody a lecture that when I prescribe a controlled substance, something like Concerta or Adderall or Vyvanse for people who have documented attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, that if it's shared um, or if I find out that it's been misaged in some other way, they don't get another prescription from me. And I am amazed at how little an issue that is. Mm-hmm. That, in fact, the bigger issue frequently with kids who have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is getting them to take their medication reliably. It's not abusing their medication. Um, but there is street value on many medications, the same as is an issue for pain medications and whatnot. or um, And so... A lot of this has to do with education, but I don't know that we're going to completely eliminate that. So we have to be careful, though. That,
0: let's say there's a person with mental illness that's homeless on the streets, not taking his medication. And you can see he's getting more and more manic every day. Is there a, there's a, is there a cause and effect by they're not taking that medicine, so then that leads to more brain issues? Well that quicker. yeah,
1: rate. well, that's that's a big question, and obviously a lot of these things are very um, diagnosis dependent, But there are many disorders that rely on a chronic course of medication in order to maintain um, equilibrium with a disorder to keep symptoms in check. Um, bipolar disorder is one of them, or manic depressive illness, schizophrenia is another one. There's some people who end up having to stay on antidepressants for one reason or another. So that there are people who – there are a great number of people who are homeless who um, are not getting the appropriate treatment they need. The challenge is uh, that when you are anxious or paranoid or ill, um, sometimes you don't have a great deal of insight. Also, some of the options where you get your treatment are not ideal mm-hmm. or you don't have easy access and, or you might be victimized so that it's really a very big dilemma. Um, There is no, um, you know, in this country, um, we protect patient rights very carefully. And so you have a right in this country to be seriously ill, um, including uh, in great distress. And as long as you're not a danger to yourself or others, nobody can make you get treatment. So it can be a big issue. And treatment for serious psychiatric issues like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or even post-traumatic stress disorder require more than therapy and more than medication. They require collaboration with social support, with help getting back into the job situation, with flexibility on the part of employers, with access to housing with access to education. So there's so many other pieces that need to go along with it. It's not just a question of taking a medication. But there are models that with outreach, with serious psychiatric disorders, even with people who have homelessness and other um, and psychosocial adversity, that um, we can make a difference. Those programs are expensive. And they require an emphasis on either nonprofit organizations or tax dollars. And as I said before, in Washington, unfortunately, we're 48 out of 50 in terms of access to mental health care.
0: That blows me away, especially when you made the comments about the great institutions of Seattle Children's and University of Washington and having collaborations and such. And um,
1: and they are maxed out, <laughs> yeah. and they're doing the very best they can. They do wonderful jobs.
0: What kind of solutions do you see?
1: Well, I, I would like all of us to talk about how we spend our tax dollars and uh, to understand that when we take care of people early in life, it's going to be a great investment, um, that when people are able to stay in school, stay on the job, um, they're likely to cost us less what we pay for both with teenagers and the adults in terms of the judicial system is extraordinarily high um, and if we could prevent from people getting into the judicial system and that's there's an un Uh, an uncommonly high percentage of people with mental health issues who are in the judicial system where they don't belong, if we could do some – invest in a lot of other those kinds of things early and the other kinds of strategies that we think can be preventive or supportive, um, I think we'd be spending our tax dollars uh, in a more reasonable way. And a lot of this includes early identification working with mothers, having home visits after discharge, um, after having a baby, um, especially with people who are at risk, um, understanding the role of adverse childhood experiences on impact over life and over multi-generations. Um, those are things that we need to invest on very early. Having a rule that every pregnant mother should be diagnosed uh, early on if they have depression and supported to get the help they need so that multi-generational issues don't occur is important.
0: I could just imagine uh, somebody with mental illness having a baby and then their whole body's screwed up, you know, and and it's hidden on different cylinders than before. And I know going through childbirth myself with my wife that she was a different person for a few days. Yes. For sure. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so I recently got a, um, interested in this um, group called uh, Babies of Homeless. And we were just talking about kids there. And I thought of this question. If two people are in a homeless encampment and they have mental issues and they create a baby and then there's this baby comes out, do we know right away if that – can we diagnose that kid at birth and say, you know, we have this MRI or or whatever to find out any type of um, flags?
1: Well, uh, no. Uh, I mean, there's certain um, inherited genetic conditions, or certainly. Children who've been uh, had fetal alcohol exposure, where that early on, that you may notice some changes in physical appearance, or they may have other coexisting medical problems. Certainly, addicted babies we recognize pretty early if they start to have withdrawal symptoms. But no, we don't. We don't. We don't have um, a test at childbirth uh, or a way of predicting. We do know that um, poverty, involvement in the ju- in the justice system. Um, Homelessness, joblessness all contribute to stressors and families, and it makes it much more difficult for them to be good parents. Um, and um, we're frequently very critical of those people as opposed to supportive of those people. Um, much so. And uh, you know, um, a little bit of generosity and love uh, would be a, a helpful approach. Um, again, um, many of us, Find uh, the whole issue of mental health issues quite stigmatizing. And, you know, we sort of think of somebody who is a homeless person who's untreated, who might be talking to themselves and and doesn't have access to good hygiene and whatnot. But that's not what most of it looks like. Most of it looks like those kids that you saw who walked in the door uh, and spoke with you who look like they're great kids on the outside, but they're really hurting on the inside. So people generally put on a brave face um, as adults as well um, because they don't want to lose their jobs. They don't want to lose their relationships. They are very concerned and frequently very ashamed. And stigma is a big, big issue.
0: Is Facebook a mental illness?
1: You know, the data about social media, not Facebook in and of itself, but the data about uh, social media is increasingly of concern so that we know that the kids who are spending more and more time passively on social media um, flipping through social media looking at other people who put up these personas of what they're doing and who they're doing you know what they're doing and who they're doing it with those kids um, are increasingly unhappy so that time on social media passive time on social media is really not such a great thing it's, it's quite harmful and um, Kids who actively use social media um, as an additional arm for social connection, um, such as texting or uh, connecting to each other, um, is not necessarily in and of itself a bad thing, but it, it really has to do with time. The concern I have about things like Facebook and social media has to do with the increase that I'm seeing in social anxiety. Because when you're doing something online or on a tablet, you have the opportunity to edit, to think about it, to craft the perfect response. Um, yeah. Filter, filters don't, galore. Yeah, but most of us learn how we do things by making terrible mistakes socially, sticking our foot in our mouth, going, oh, I'm going to do it differently next time.
0: I've been diagnosed with foot and mouth disease, <laughs> early age. I
1: think most of us have done it from time to time. So those experiences are really very important. And, and social media does not necessarily give you the experience you need in order to do that. And likewise, the covert way that bullying can take place on social media is of great concern. And it's, it's, it's one of the big contributors of teenage suicide.
0: Yeah, that blows me away, the cyberbullying, bullying. I, I, maybe I don't understand it enough, but I feel like I could delete a comment or a post and take it down and then that troll or person is, I'm done with them. You know, it's not like the guy that punches me in the stomach and takes my lunch money every day in the hall when nobody's looking. Uh, But I hear more and more increasingly that cyberbullying is leading to suicide at really early ages, ages that I wouldn't even think these people would have social media accounts.
1: So I think parents need to pay attention and uh, have those kinds of discussions with their kids. We're not going to be getting rid of social media, um, but I think we need to be increasingly aware. Again, um, you know, I have parents complain all the time, oh, you know, my child just goes up to the room and closes the door. Well, let's do something about that.
0: Yeah, take the door off the hinge, Mom. (laughs) Um, Do diagnosis often change like you go down a path and it's not working and you feel like hey maybe I've misdiagnosed this person and this is a better path yes
1: yeah well a couple of things one is that um, if you think about any organ system if there's something the matter with the organ there might be more than one thing the matter with the organ so for instance a lot of disorders are what we call comorbid or coexisting so anxiety and depression often go together Um, Sometimes they're not both recognized. Um, Kids with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder often have coexisting disorders like anxiety or depression or obsessive compulsive disorder or Tourette's disorder or even autism. Um, Sometimes disorders start out looking like something um, and they evolve over time. And, uh, you know, as psychiatrists, we're frequently put in a situation where we're trying to make a disorder in a cross-sectional, a single point in time, and you do your very best. But things are going to evolve over time. So puberty turns out to be a risk factor for many adult psychiatric disorders. As I said, 50% of all psychiatric disorders present by the time somebody's 14. But the ages between 14 and 18 ended up being risk risky times for the development of more um, serious psychiatric disorders like depression and bipolar disorder and schizophrenia.
0: Don't don't kids take more risks generally at that age?
1: Yes, yes, yes. All of a
0: sudden they become brave or what I like to label stupid sometimes.
1: Yeah. Well, we do know that brain development um, is... Uh, slower and and that, you know, we're even, you know, we're beginning to recognize that even up until the age of 23 or 26, sometimes brain development isn't fully complete and that decision-making, judgment, impulsivity can be issues with young people. And we need to take that into consideration.
0: Is there a daily practice of mind health that you could suggest?
1: Well, I'll tell you what my daily practice is of mind health. And I think everybody needs to have their own networks for them.
0: Just don't say Sudoku. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't want to advertise for this uh, this app, but it, it is my favorite app. It's now available apparently through Alexa. It's gone viral. Um, it's called Headspace, and that's yeah, yeah. called oh, mindfulness way. meditation. And I like Headspace because – The um, individual who does the teaching on Headspace happens to be a pretty good teacher, and he has some really great videos and graphics that explain the process. Um, And there's so many different choices. I think the first 10 sessions are free, and then they get you, and they have you pay something monthly. There are a number of other mindfulness apps uh, that are free. Um, breathe is one of them and there are lots of other ones. Yeah. So there are lots, I think mindfulness medication, meditation, not medication. (laughs) I think it is a, it acts like medication is something that everybody could benefit for five or 10 minutes a day, fit it in there. And, uh, it's a wonderful stress reducer being, learning how to sit with feelings. We don't erase them, how to tolerate them, recognize them, allow them to come and go, um, is a really important skill to learn. And mindfulness meditation is a skill that requires practice. I also think exercise. Uh, Exercise is a great way to manage stress. But any kind of what we call activation, meaning when you're feeling down and you're not in the mood, we try and get people to do the things that used to give them pleasure, even though they're not yet in the mood. Because we know that when they're activated, when we get them activated again, they're going to start feeling better. So those are three important things that people can do. But I think everybody should have their own little stress reduction kit or toolkit in, you know, in their back pocket. And they should have three or six different things that they know that work, that they can try on for size at a moment's notice, because nobody's going to go through life without stress. And Certainly, the world is no less stressful than it ever was before. Um, and I think parents need to learn how to do it. Kids need to learn how to do it. And we, should, we need to put our money where our mouth is and start practicing it.
0: All right. Let's go deep. Why does a kid shoot up and other kids out of school?
1: Well, that's a, that's a very big question. Um, the, there isn't a single psychological profile for school shooters. Um, There are kids who are merely antisocial, um, and we've seen that with some of the school shootings.
0: Recent traumas, right?
1: Uh, Some of them have had recent traumas. Some of them have had adverse child experience. Some of them are just kids who are conduct disordered, impulsive, and have access to a weapon. So not all kids who shoot up at schools have mental health disturbance, believe it or not.
0: What is compulsion disorder?
1: Compulsion disorder?
0: Yeah, you were saying that um, sometimes they have impulses or... uh, Oh, impulsive? Impulsive.
1: Well, people are impulsive when they act before they think. Uh, And that part has to do with development over time. But some people are more impulsive than others. But if somebody has difficulty with anger management, and they also are impulsive... And they also have access to a deadly weapon. They may not have a psychiatric disorder, but that's a pretty bad combination. Yeah, Many of the, you know, there are kids who've been involved in shootings who do have bona fide psychiatric disorders, but not all of them. Uh, Some of them have been bullied. Uh, Some of them have had uh, or... Angry because they have been failing in the system for a long time, that they've not been managing socially, they've not been managing academically, they frequently have had um, disciplinary issues, they may have been removed from the school, uh, and they come back and they're angry, and they have access to weapons of destruction. So it's, it's, it's very complicated, um And I don't think that you can come up with a single profile. Um, s- schools are beginning to put together teams of people, which include um, law enforcement officers, psychologists, school administrators, and people from the public, to begin to assess kids who are at risk um, to t- you know, so that when something or somebody says something... Um, it's taken quite seriously and looked at. Um, But I think there needs to be a careful look because sometimes kids just do stupid things like the way they used to make phony phone calls. I mean, we know that there was a lockdown issue with one of, you know, a couple of girls just fooling around, not, I think, understanding exactly the the consequences, the consequences of what they were doing. Um, So I think it's 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 a huge issue. The whole issue of gun control, inadequate gun control in this country, I mean, is obviously incredibly polarized. Um, I have been very, very pleased to see that one of the ways that the kids are coping at you know, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School, um, the survivors, They're is by becoming activists. Yeah. And isn't that wonderful?
0: They're doing a wonderful job. Uh, you know, those th- those kids
1: are so brave and so amazing. Um the kids I've seen after the sh- the lockdowns here, um, many of them have really been very traumatized by this. It is scary. They don't know what's real or it's not real. They're not able to stay in touch with their adults. A lot of them are posting things, you know, I love you in case I never talk to you again. Um, it's been terrifying. The, we've had three this year. It's been terrifying for a lot of the kids. Um, and, you know, it, it's... I I think it's an awfully tough call for a community uh, to decide whether or not they're going to have a lockdown or not. You know, uh, when do they draw the line? How do, you know, how do they be safe? How do you not have a hair-trigger response? Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, how do you not place your community at risk?
0: How do you not become desensitized to these lockdowns? And I've seen that in kids. Like, yeah, lockdown, I'm going to go down to Starbucks. Yeah. You know, they just walk off campus or, or stuff like that. Like they don't think of it as anything special. It's
1: yeah. On the other hand, we all know that um, practice allows us to get through emergency situations. You know, it's why we have disaster preparedness on this island. It's why the military people, the Red Cross, the police, go through worst-case scenarios a thousand times so that when the real deal happens that you're prepared and you don't panic and you're not frozen. But you're right. Um, that's a possible problem.
0: Uh, Something came to mind when you were stating that. When I went to school, there was standardized testing. There was uh, physical education testing. There was earthquake training, get under your desk. There's a stop, drop and roll for your fire. There was an eye test. There was a hearing test. There is even a, a rhythm test to see if you qualified as musically inclined to go to band. Why can't we just throw another mental health screening in that school system or a preparedness type review?
1: Yeah, well, I think because it's complicated, but, you know, when we were talking about that collaborative care model, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um, which has been, I think, well designed for adults, it's not as well designed yet for kids and teenagers, and there's a group of people uh, with the help of the collaborative care people who, there's just been an invitation out for child psychiatrists to get involved to try and see if we can roll this out for kids, um, there are screening tools that pediatricians and primary care doctors can use. And that may be the place that a lot of it takes place as opposed to in the school. You know, kids need to go in for their annual physical. Yeah, that's, that's a good place to start. And that's a great place to start.
0: What What type of improvements in society and the viewing of, of mental health would you like to see in the future?
1: Well, I'd like um, us all to be able to talk freely if we've been depressed If we've ever been treated for anxiety or depression and not worry about stigma, not worry about if we're going to keep our job or keep our relationship or keep our marriage or keep our place in high school or in university, Um, I think that would be a great place to start. I'd like access uh, to mental health services. I'd like to make sure that the people providing the mental health services are trained adequately, that they understand what's evidence-based and what's you know, flavor of the week, that there is a difference. Um, I think that we all need to understand that we continue to learn over time and things get better over time so that we're going to sometimes have to reject something that we thought was a good idea. An example of that, for instance, used to be crisis debriefing. So after 9-11, you know, everybody came in and they sat around and they talked about their experiences in a group. Uh, And then, you know, it became increasingly clear by the time Katrina came around that sometimes that was causing damage to people. That was re-traumatizing people. And now there are other models. There's a model that we're trying to roll out in this community in Kitsap County, which is endorsed by the Red Cross and uh, international organizations called psychological first aid, uh, which is another way of managing stress. So we learn over time. And I think we all have to make sure that People continue to educate themselves. That we, it we, and that we also spend as much time in research as we do in uh, the CDC. I think now has a budget of two hundred forty-seven billion dollars, or something or other. But their research budget, I think, is for executing programs, and that's great. But the budget for research is well below that, and and we're going to have to continue to figure it out and understand that we don't have all the answers yet. So we need access, we need research, we need to work on stigma, a lot of public health issues.
0: Where are some resources that people could uh, go to? Um, can you direct some people in some resources? Yes. And- you know, talk about what you're doing and where you're at.
1: Well, one of the questions I should have, and I want you to make sure that it is on the website, but I don't have it at my fingertips, and I usually do, is everybody should know about the crisis line number. There is a crisis line where anybody can call up 24-7 and get some support. And I apologize for not having it at this point, but hopefully you can get it in this podcast.
0: Yeah, we'll uh, put it in the show notes at the top.
1: Great. Uh So that's certainly um, a very great place to start. Start with your primary care doctor. If you're not feeling well, if your child isn't feeling well, if you have a question, start with your primary care doctor, your pediatrician, your family doctor, your internist. That's a great place to start. The other place to go and ask for help is within the school system. If you have a school counselor, great. Great. If you don't, frequently the school principal or the assistant principal can point you in the right direction. They know a great deal about resources in the community. Um, I'd like to see more crisis teams in our school system, Um, but I think right now I would start with your primary care doctor and with your support system in the school and to know that there's a crisis line. Um, There are wonderful websites um, online, that are also all great sources of mental health information. And the National Institute of Health.org, NIH.org, is a great one. Um, there are some wonderful support programs in this community. The National Alliance of Mental Illness, NAMI, is a great place to go for help and support. Um, and then the American Psychiatric Association. The American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry have their own websites and fact sheets. Uh, for child psychiatry, it's AACAP.org. That's a great resource. Um, the Amer- uh, American Pediatric Association has great resources. So there are lots and lots of resources out there that you can look for online. But a great place to start is with your primary care doctor and with your educators.
0: Uh, one one more question before we get out of here. How do we get a child to be brave enough to feel like they, they can talk to their counselor? Like, you, you can tell that they don't want to talk to you, but something's up. How do we get empower them to be brave enough to even bring up the topic with a counselor?
1: That's a really great question, because you're right. It does take a little bit of bravery. Well, certainly, you need to make sure that um, in the school— that there is a sense among the kids that those who have gone forth to a counselor have been heard as opposed to lectured lecture to. So that there is a non-judgmental accepting voice in the school. And word gets around about those kinds of things. Um, but kids don't go forth unless they feel that they're going to be taken seriously and they're going to be protected in some way. So there has to be an atmosphere of trust. And that goes both ways. That means that the school administration needs to trust the kids, and the kids need to be able to trust, trust the teachers and the administration. Um, and then the counselors come within that. There also needs to be confidentiality because people don't speak up unless they feel like that they, they can talk privately.
0: Yeah, if they don't want to tell their parents, they definitely don't want their counselor to tell their parents. So there has to be that confidentiality. Yes. Linda, it was a pleasure meeting you. Thank you for coming in today. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. you've been listening to the bystander, be kind."